Hello, and welcome to the Block Solid Podcast, where we talk about the evolution of the property market, the newest technologies that enhance and revolutionize the world of real estate as we know it, and how we, the owners, the buyers, the renters, the investors, and the entrepreneurs can benefit from it all. I'm Yael Tamar, CMO and co-founder of SolidBlock, pioneer in real estate tokenization, and today I'd like to welcome a very special guest, Trond Arn Anheim. Trond is a futurist, speaker, entrepreneur, and former director of MIT Startup Exchange, based outside of Boston. He is the CEO and co-founder of Yegi, a search engine for industry professionals providing collective intelligence. Another cool thing about Tron is that he helps organizations to deal with disruption. Hi, Tron. Hello. How are you? I'm doing great. Awesome. So good to meet you at this conference. Yeah, likewise. It's so excited to be here with you. How did you end up being here? You know, it's an easy and short story. I have this podcast, Futurized, and I reached out to Anthony Ritosa, Sir Anthony, who is the founder and who runs the summit. And I've been identifying summits and conferences that are leading in each kind of community that I am tracking for, for various projects, which we can maybe get into. But one of my fascinations has been with basically tracking what is essential insight mm -hmm. around the world and trying to find platforms to do that, which is, you know, why this summit came out, it came out as one of the leading communities for family offices and, and thus for wealth creations and thus also for the future. Right. So, and I said, you know, can I interview you? And he was busy. So he said, well, you know, yes, maybe, but why don't you come to my event <laughs> and you can interview hundreds of people. <laughs> so I couldn't turn that down. I love that. And you talk about the future. I read that you call yourself a futurist. So what unique skills do you have that let you make great predictions? Well, so you made a lot of assumptions right now. I'm glad you challenged me on this because futurist is a label I just slapped on myself about a year ago. Mm -hmm. So I have lived comfortably for like 45 plus years, without 47, without any, <laughs> without any futurist bias. And I lived fine. But it turns out that I guess it crystallized for me around about a, a year ago that what I'm really interested in and what I have been doing for a while, at least that when I got out of academia, because I think, you know, when you work for a university, it's really tricky to call yourself a futurist. It's futurist is a commercial label. So that's number one. It's, it's not an academic pursuit. And I have been an academic and in academia, you cannot call yourself a futurist unless you're kind of making a distinction. You're saying, you know, now I'm a futurist and now I'm, I'm at work and I'm, you know, academic. But number two, you said, you know, predict the future. Those are the old school futurists. They take a lot of risk, these futurists that predict, because, you know, at least if you predict, you know, three to five to 10 years, you might live as long to be wrong. This is a horrible business to be in. You will be right. famous, but wrong. So then right. now you're famous for being wrong. So I try to be the other kind of futurist, which really is the grown up futurist. We are scenario theorists. So we basically, it's, there's no magic to it, but you do have to track trends. You have to find kind of verticals and areas where you are looking at things that are evolving. And then, you know, simple as then tracking the people that are writing about these areas and, or, you know, observing in some cases markets. And then you look at the curves in each of these markets and you look at the opinions in each of these, mm. what I call, you know, with my forthcoming book, The Forces of the Disruption, you, you just simply track whatever you have decided you think are the kind of the tentacles of these forces. And there's really no magic to that, but you have to do the work. 
And then you just project from all of those things, you know, in my case, five forces that I think are important and we can get into those. But, but, you know, you make then scenarios and you say, well, if this one is, you know, toggle five, then this is going to happen. But if this other force only goes to two, now you're, you're looking at a different scenario. And then, you, you know, you're just limited at a sensible number of scenarios. And then reality is going to be somewhere within those five. So it's an insurance policy and I get to call myself a futurist. I love it. You're a cautious futurist. That's right. So you, it sounds like you've spent a long time analyzing disruption in business and society. So you shared your concept of four forces or was it five? Well, it started out with four and, and there was this fifth kind of contextual force of kind of the environment around you, which for me actually started a long time ago when in my PhD when I wrote about the power of place. Uh, so I've been kind of like sense- New York and sex in the city. As little a, bit as like a that character. <laughs> a little bit like that because it's about the people and the infrastructure that mm-hmm. only reside in sort of physical places. But of course, there's another aspect which we have all, I guess, really started to realize, which is the physical environment is mm-hmm. one thing, but the ecosystem environment, which is also, of course, a sort of a physical and a biological entity, and COVID and you know zoonotic diseases suddenly come into play, mm-hmm. and they're not going to be the only force that actually stops and regulates all business activity. So I have now included that sort of fifth environmental okay. force within something that every business has to just start considering. And it's not even just sustainability. These things can stop and block your business. So you have to start worrying about right. them. And I like that you said in one of those for, you know, one of those forces that social dynamics seems to be more important that, than tech even, right? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that there used to be a tiny little academic community that talked about these things, right? They would, you know, have names like social study of science, that kind of thing, social constructionism. Mm-hmm. Many of them were ridiculed or have been ridiculed yeah. over the, you know, over over the decades because they they would start studying, you know, smaller things. And, and you know, they're a little reactionary as a group, right? Because they would say things like, you know, mm-hmm. you have to really worry about the ethics. And <laughs> right. so, so you could sort of criticize that and you yeah. could say, you know, as an innovator, this is a very backwards, like yeah. a Luddite sort of, attitude to progress. You've seen that a lot in AI, right? You see that a lot. Well, but it happens to be a very important perspective. And I Mm -hmm. think more and more people are, and it's not just me, starting to realize that social dynamics not, it's not that it drives everything, Mm -hmm. but you cannot consider technology without the angle of consumption and use. Mm -hmm. And many, many times, if not every time, yeah, this happens. I now need to go and turn this darn thing on. Yeah, I was just saying, so social dynamics is actually equally or more important than tech and innovation based on kind of technical inventions when it comes to actual change. Mm-hmm. Meaning, you know, many times technology, you could say instant, uh, starts or begins the change, but really the engineers were inspired by something around them that inspired the change. So you could sort of say, it isn't really the technology. Technology is sort of just an answer to challenges that are out there. So that's one reason. And the other thing is, once a technology is successful and in use, what decides whether it really takes off and accelerates or sort of dies on the vine, Mm -hmm. those are social choices. Absolutely. So about the social choices, I noticed you have a book on failure. What are some lessons we can learn from those experiences you wrote about? 
Yeah. So failure is interesting because, you know, I'm not the first to study failure. My particular take, however, on failure in business and startups is I sort of see it, if you think about science, right? For Mm -hmm. the longest time, a lot of people would say, you know, science is all about progress and there's nothing to do with failure. But there are emerging scholars now coming out and saying, well, actually, science is a system of failure. It actually institutionalizes failure as a strategy, like, yeah. you know, experimentation. That's what governments invest in it, you know? Right. And, you know, if every morning you go in and you check your lab work and you actually expect those cells to be dead, essentially, you know, I mean, a lot of science is about, is about observing failure and writing about it. And then that one anomaly turns out to be something that you maybe gets the attention. So, and it is a little similar with, with startup life. There are many, many more things that fail. But one of the things that I think is perhaps unique about the perspective I bring to this, and I wonder if this is my Scandinavian background, Mm -hmm. because in the US, you know, lean failure and lean startups is all about fail fast. Mm -hmm. My perspective is actually that you need to fail slowly. Interesting. And the reason being that if you fail too fast, you're mm-hmm. not learning anything. So I relate this back to learning. Like and this COVID, actually maybe right? is something you mm-hmm. can relate to, you know, with sort of a, in mm-hmm. the Russian sphere of things. I really am a believer in kind of Vygotskyan pedagogy where mm-hmm. you sort of like learning is all about challenging yourself in an yeah. appropriate way, not too much. So, you know, you don't necessarily learn so much from like catastrophic yeah. failure yep. where yep. the whole, your whole being falls apart. Yep. Yeah, if you're lucky to come out of that, you do learn something. As a parent, you kind of know, Sure, right? but yeah. I think the kind of productive failure I'm talking about is where you really have pushed yourself to your limit and a little bit beyond. And in the book, I liken it to the Olympics, uh-huh. to the Olympic athletes. Yeah. When you train, you train to the point of failure yeah. and then you rest yeah. and you recuperate. I like that. And that's sort of how I think about startup life. And that's how I think really real change happens. Pushing the boundaries. I love that. Yeah. I and then that. you go back and you reflect, but mm-hmm. and it's a cycle and yeah. you have to be methodical about yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. So that's what I'm thinking about. Fascinating. Another fascinating thing is that I saw that you put out a book about COVID-19 in May. <laughs> how were you able to put it together so fast? Well, the strange thing is, I don't think I was unique in the world to have this perspective, but I saw in late January that this was going to shape our decade. And I decided, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not a medical professional, but I felt like I wanted to do something. And I said to myself, you know what, I think I know what's happening here. Mm-hmm. And I just put myself in my attic 17 hours a day, wrote 450 pages over February and March. And yeah, I wrote a book on the pandemic aftermath where essentially the thesis is that, you know, this decade will be shaped by COVID for better or for worse. And it's not just because, you know, COVID is a significant disease, but it has to do with our social reactions to it. So I saw that whether or not the sort of physical disease deserved to change our decade because of all these dynamics around it, it is going to change our decade. And, and I think that has been borne out. I don't think it's going to disappear, you know, next yeah. week. Yeah. So it, it's been, that was an interesting journey, but yes, it's maybe a little surprising. It like is. in the beginning of May, I had a, a book out on COVID. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a human tendency. So I do hope that that sort of solidified a little bit, you know, my predictive abilities. Yeah, but the good thing <laughs> that I put in the book is they were all scenarios. You know, wow. I wasn't going to dare to sort of 
conclude what, what this decade is going to look like. like. And I don't pretend that. I have some ideas like about which, doors, which right? technologies mm-hmm. are important, mm-hmm. you know, what's going to happen. So tell us, politics. Wait, based on what's happening today, which technology will you bet on and which investment direction would you take? Well, in February already, it was pretty obvious that if this was going to become significant, you know, future work technologies are going to become crucial. And the interesting thing, as I sort of started reflecting on this, and this is kind of interesting because I kind of considered e-learning and parts of future of work to be within my sphere of competence. After all, I'd written a PhD about it. And I also thought of myself as like a semi-advanced user of these technologies. And I thought, you know, okay, people don't have the skills. That's why the adoption isn't there. The tools are okay. They're, they're good. But then I realized that writing this that, there was going to be big shifts in this technology because the technologies weren't good enough. They just have never been good enough. It's not just that people weren't adopting them because they weren't clever. The technologies weren't all that clever. So there has been a major shift already. I think we haven't really seen. Hopefully the products that are coming out of this are going to be radically different. They're going to, I mean, we were, I sort of think we were thrown into the decade With COVID. I agree. I and, agree. Well, I think also augmenting technologies, augmented reality technologies. Yeah. They, they just made almost a decade leap forward in uses. And I think we will see some killer applications already within this decade that we probably would have seen the next decade. Absolutely. Well, b- beyond your predictive abilities, talking to you now, I understand that you need to have not only your own podcast, but maybe your own talk show for real <laughs> on network television. <laughs> no, but television. it's interesting, right? Network, I mean, these yeah. things are, yeah. one of the annoying things with having this sort of way of thinking is mm-hmm. that I think in decades, forwards and backwards, but the mm-hmm. problem is not everybody does. And I have a mind that's <laughs> never at rest. So I yeah. mean, I guess I'm a stressful person to be around sometimes because I was sort of the only one that was scratching right. my head around COVID in February. I know, right? So I, I guess I was annoying, you know, both my family and friends. They were like, what are you talking about? <laughs> well, now, now they're going <laughs> to listen to you for sure. Yeah. So talk about your podcast. Why did you start a podcast? And there's a lot of podcasts out there. So what is your niche? Well, first of all, I realized I should have started a podcast 10 years ago because mm-hmm. this podcast is no different from my everyday life. It's just yeah. putting my everyday life online. That's right. what's happening in this mm-hmm. podcast. And I made a curious choice, which I'm not sure it was the smartest choice. I am a very kind of expansive macro level thinker. So my podcast isn't limited to a niche. Mm-hmm. I simply said, I'm going to take the framework that I am interested in that will likely shape the next decade. And I'm going to talk about that in a podcast. Right. I'm going to find the smartest and most interesting, but also the most yeah. sincere people that I can find. And we're going to have mm. real honest conversations about what in their field of work leads them to, to think and what do they see in their fields is going to happen as we kind of slowly inch into this decade. So we talk about technology. I have founders on, I have business leaders to some degree. Those are harder to get on. They are busy people, yeah. but definitely founders, other thought leaders, authors who write books. I, I love books. Yeah. It's been a fascination of mine since I was you know, little. I used to read two to three books a day, you know, from I was 12. I, I think my local library must have hated me, oh. bring back bags of, no, of, of books. You. As long But as you brought them back. I brought most of them back. <laughs> yeah, most of them yeah, back. Yeah. So I would say the aims with the podcast is mm-hmm. simply to to understand and 
one thing that I'm really passionate about is I do think that elitist thinking has to go. So the podcast is really about trying to bring public debate to a completely new level. I want mm-hmm. to break barriers with mm-hmm. uh, reaching, because I believe that everyone should be reflecting mm-hmm. about their sur- surroundings. And right. I think technology is moving fast. Yeah. Perhaps moving too fast for too some fast. people to to follow. So it's really important. It's not just about ethics. It's actually we want the best technologies possible to do the most good for the most people. Right. And I hope that the podcast can become a medium where good people get on. And you know, I want to have non-experts on as well. But we're going to discuss things that matter for the next decade. And then, so the topic really is the next decade. I love it. So I would love for you as an expert podcaster to tell us you know, the beginner podcasters, what we need to look out for, what kind of tools, you know, are making this possible for you as a busy person to maintain the podcast, how you market it and how you get an audience, just words of wisdom from you. All right. So I have words of wisdom. The first is a little bit of cold water, right? So everyone says, if you go on the internet, mm-hmm. everyone, meaning, you know, you can find blogs that said, you know, everyone can have a podcast. Yeah. And while that is true for the technology, right? You can have a podcast using your phone. Yeah. You don't need a lot of technology. So yes, that is true. It's not hard to have a podcast, but it's also completely untrue because what do you need? You need a deep curiosity about something you need to have some insight a little bit, at least an insight enough to ask good questions. You need to be curious. Mm-hmm. Not everyone is curious. Mm-hmm. Number three is because there now are more podcasts, you can't really get away with not making small investments in quality of sound, audio equipment. Um, and if you want to go video, obviously, you know, there's a little bit of investment. So, so that, there's a little investment. But then the real thing is, of course, in the marketing and also just in running it. You know, you can outsource today, you can find, you can do a little, you can Tim Ferrisize this thing. You can hire people in, in Thailand and kind of more low cost environments to do some of the editing, some of the marketing even, but you can't get around from the fact that this does take a little time. So I'd say my experience now is it took me two, three months to really get up to speed to a quality where, that I'm happy with. And then now, as you said, I'm busy with lots of other things. I have to sort of productionize this and find a way to make it fit with my everyday life. And that is is going to be a struggle for everybody. Because once you have an audience, they sort of expect, I think, that you actually issue these podcasts regularly. Yeah. And with some frequency. Yeah. So you have to (laughs) commit. You have to commit. Yeah. So if you have curiosity, have a little bit of the patience to learn the trade and you have commitment, you can be a podcaster. So I, three new words I learned from you today was futurize, timpharisize, and productionize. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> Maybe part that's of being title, a futurist uh, again, yeah, right? Know, you, right? You have to kind of come up with these uh, neologisms, otherwise, what, who are you? I know, right? Yeah. Good. Yeah, yeah. Those, those are going to be under your name in the Merriam-Webster dictionary. Hopefully. Hopefully. Well, thank you so much, John. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me and, you know, and, and letting me interview you. So, you know, it's Well, we fun. did this thing, which uh, is the most yeah. unfair thing in media. I actually yeah. used to be really upset about it when I, re- yeah. you know, when I watch TV and journal- 
journalists yeah. or interviewing journalists. Yeah. But I think for for sort of activist journalists that are starting up, it's okay. It's, it's okay. A, because yeah, yeah, we can have these conversations. Yeah. Well, I, I will Ellen can it. interview Jennifer Aniston. You know what prevents us to interview each other? Well, you I know? think we will one day. Yeah, we will one day. Awesome. Well, thanks, Trond, and have a safe trip back home. Likewise. Thanks. Thanks for joining me on Block Solid Podcast today, Tron. It was great having you on. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or by visiting our website at solidblog.co slash podcast. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate and review and spread the word. Thanks for listening. See you next time.